This is a Triple J podcast. Hey there, Tim Shepard filling in for Dave Marchese on the Hack Podcast. What do you do when it gets really hot? Do you go outside? Do you head to a beach or a pool to have a swim? Maybe you just stay inside in the aircon. Well, it's something we should all actually be thinking about because experts say that it's going to be hot and dry this spring and summer, and that means more heat waves. But it turns out that barely any of us have a plan to deal with those. Also on the show, we're going to bring you up to speed on what's happening in Libya. But first, we're going to start with dating apps. Hack. It makes me mad that this platform is making money off of people that are being hurt. On Triple J. Dating apps are a huge part of our lives now. It's probably how you met the love of your life or wound up in your latest situationship. But for a lot of people, dating apps don't end in happily ever afters. In fact, three out of four users of apps like Hinge, Bumble, Grindr, Tinder, and Field have been the victim of sexual violence in the past five years. That's according to the Australian Institute of Criminology. And here on Hack, we've investigated this for years and talked about the need for online dating platforms to become safer. Well, now the federal government reckons it's cracking down on the apps. So here's April McLennan with a recap of what's been happening. And a warning, this story does contain descriptions of sexual assault, so you may want to switch off for the next few minutes or so. The problem with dating apps isn't that they're dating apps. The interaction that you have with them, meeting up with people, is that people use this the wrong way. I know people that have met through Tinder, they've met amazing people, but unfortunately, for a lot of people, it doesn't end the way they want it to be. Back in 2020, Hack teamed up with ABC's Four Corners to do a massive investigation into sexual assault on dating apps. Do you guys feel safe on dating apps? Yeah, uh, personally, I think it's probably, if you're a woman, you might find it's not as safe or you don't feel as safe. I still need to be cautious, so I still need to, like, set my friend's location. We did a public call out and got more than 400 responses and 175 of them told us they'd experienced a sex offence by someone they'd met on Tinder. Basically, the investigation found these dating apps had created an environment where predators could do what they want. He looked down on me and he just said straight face to me, well, you're not allowed to leave until I come. He, yeah, then pulled his pants off. and just sort of just went for it and just um, raped me. The app that's made meeting up with strangers normal actually has a pretty sinister problem and it's enabling sexual predators. Through the Hack and Four Corners investigation, we found that some perpetrators unmatched or blocked their victims on Tinder after sexually assaulting them, meaning they can't be traced. He raped me twice while I cried and begged him to stop. I wanted to report him to Tinder, but he unmatched me within an hour, so I had no way of bringing up his profile again. He ended up trying to take the condom off without me knowing. I couldn't report him on Tinder because he'd already blocked me. Since then, Tinder's announced some changes, including a review of its handling of sexual assault complaints, and it's also made it easier to report people who've unmatched with you, although the unmatched feature is still available. While Bumble also announced changes to their app, so that if you unmatch with someone, the conversation will be greyed out instead of disappearing altogether. The communications minister at the time the investigation aired, Paul Fletcher, says dating apps need to build safety into their products. Make a lot of money from them and they need to make sure that they're designed in a way that they're doing everything they can to protect the safety of people who use these sites. 
So what's changed since then? To put it simply, not a whole lot. The government held a roundtable in January this year to talk about online safety. Today, the federal government is asking the apps to step up and create a code of practice. But as Communications Minister Michelle Rowland says, the code they want isn't even going to be mandatory, it's voluntary. We expect the code will cover specific areas, committing the industry to improving engagement with law enforcement, supporting at-risk users, reviewing and improving safety policies and practices, safety by design and child safety frameworks, providing greater transparency about harms. The government says the code must be in place by the middle of next year. Otherwise, they'll create laws to regulate the industry. Catherine Burney from the National Women's Safety Alliance says the code should be mandatory. The voluntary code of conduct is a great start, but again, it needs to go further. We're just not going to have a linear solution that's necessarily policy-driven. It's going to have to work in tandem with deep cultural change. Hack on Triple J. Abram McLennan with that story. And of course, if that raised any issues for you, you can call 1-800-RESPECT, which is one 800 737-732 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. Well, what do you think of the government's solution? Do you think it'll work? Should they be moving faster? Do you trust the apps to solve the problem? Let me know. You can text in on 0439 You can also call in as well, 1300 Well, I want to ask someone about this. Kath Albury is a professor of media and communication from Swinburne University of Technology. Thank you for coming on Hack. Hey, thank you. Look, more people than ever are meeting their partners through apps these days, so clearly we have to learn to live with them, don't we? Yeah, and honestly, I don't think um, the apps are um, more or less dangerous than dating face-to-face. We have um, really um, broad issues around sexual violence and the apps are one space where that occurs. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, the problem with apps compared to regular dating or in the past is that it provides people with a lot more volume of people to be able to connect with, right? Uh, it's, look, it, it does, but um, the people who are perpetrators are perpetrators and the people who are not are not. It's, it's the people who are uh, perpetrating the assault, not the app itself. Um, so I, I think we have a really broad societal issue around consent. We have a really broad issue around intimate partner violence. And one of the places that plays out is dating apps. Okay, and clearly there are a lot of bad experiences. What are some of the most common issues that people are reporting when they're using these apps? When we were talking to app users, um, there was a lot of concern about unwanted approaches, unwanted messages or um, unwanted images, um, and particularly from people where there was no established conversation, no assent, uh, no, no um, negotiation of a consent. Basically, the first contact was the digital equivalent of um, flashing or yelling abuse out of a passing car. Um, and this was something where people wanted to see the app design um, make it easier um, for them to screen out um, particular people and, and be more visible to the people they wanted to see, particularly LGBTQ plus people. Um, there were also issues around um, uh, racist abuse, transphobic abuse, um, all of the um, spaces socially and culturally where people are marginalised or stigmatised 
um, that, that people who are violent or abusive on apps are, are, are targeting people who are, who are um, stigmatised in offline spaces too. And is it an issue whether apps were almost enabling those issues or allowing them to be worse than they might be in a real-life situation? Uh, look, again, I wouldn't say it's worse or that apps are not real life. They're part of real life. Um, what people were concerned about um, when we were doing the interviews was that when they um, reported to the app, um, they were never sure where that complaint was going. Um, initially, when we were doing our research, um, the apps didn't have great systems for responding to complaints. Sometimes people said to us they felt like the complaint went into the void or they were talking to an automated system or a chatbot. And what they wanted was um, really personal, on-the-ground responses. They wanted um, referral systems. Mm -hmm. They wanted a clear sense of what happened when they made a report. People also, I should say, um, have been subject to vexatious reports from automated, where it's just an automated system and not a human moderator. So trans women have reported, basically, have been reported, I should say, for transphobic reasons on apps. Um, and if there's not a human moderating the system, it's it's very hard for that to get sorted out. I know I know some of the apps are dealing with that right now and have been quite public about it. And what about the issue of screening people who use the apps? A lot of people are worried about people with bad intentions being able to get on those apps without any sort of checking process. Is that something yeah, that people I mean, are concerned about? That, that is not something that anyone was concerned about in our research, I must say. And, and the people that we spoke to saw apps as an environment like the pub. You don't know whether the person you're talking to in the pub has um, been pre-screened or not. And there was pretty significant privacy concerns around that. So, for example, LGBTQ plus people who weren't out in their community didn't want to be providing ID to the app um, because that was basically creating a database of queer people where it might not be safe for them to be out in that way. Um, also, um, there are many, many people, unfortunately, who are violent or abusive, who have never been subject to criminal charges and there were concerns that um, a database that was only linked to things like police records basically might give app users a false sense of security. It's like, oh, well, if they have no um, you know, prior police issues, mm. therefore they are a quote-unquote safe person, and that is certainly not the case. This is Hack on Triple J. I'm Tim Shepard, and I'm speaking with Kath Albury, a professor who spent a lot of time researching dating apps. I want to talk about the government's proposed solution here. They held a roundtable at the start of year, and now they've given a timeline of another several months to come up with a voluntary code of conduct, which will be developed by the apps themselves. Do you think the government's doing enough here? Yeah, look, we know that every app is very different, and it caters to a very different market. So it would be really unfortunate for the government to jump in and do a top-down response that, for example, assumed that every single um, app user was heterosexual um, or that every single app user was white and therefore we didn't need to um, talk about the different cultural contexts that people are coming from when they're using apps. Um, the apps themselves need to be able to meet the needs of their users and, and their users are very diverse. So in the first instance, I think it is important that apps develop their own response. 
Um, but I do think they have to be held to account and they have to be held to a standard. Well, they're developing their own response, but I mean, why haven't they done that already? They Surely they've known about these issues. We've been talking about them for years. Look, they have been involved in the roundtables. I think the, the one word answer to your question is capitalism. Um, the apps make money by maximising the number of people who are using them and, um, you know, trading in that data um, that they get by connecting different people's profiles and connecting app users to advertising. And so it's not in their interests to constrain the connectivity um, in the app. Um, and also it costs them money to put human moderators in instead of automated moderation, for example. They're, they're trying right. to work globally and at scale. But isn't that a sign that maybe the government should step in and rather than leave it up to a voluntary code of conduct if they're not willing to do it on their own? Uh, look, they have said they are willing to do it on their own, though. So they, they, if they have signed up to the voluntary code of conduct and they're going to give it a go, I don't think that um, it's worth imposing something that doesn't actually meet the needs of app users. There are many app users who don't particularly trust the government to do a good job of this, I have to say. Um, and they see the apps at least meeting some kind of need for them. Um, they don't necessarily want the government involved in their dating life. That's not to say that there's not, you know, real issues here, but um, uh, often a, a kind of top-down response involves policing, and that's not safe for every community that uses apps. Well, I actually wanted to ask about working with police because obviously there's issues where people have problems with someone on the app but it doesn't move into the criminal space, but then there are ones where it does become a criminal matter. Are the apps working closely enough with police in those cases, do you think? I think in the past couple of years, apps have really improved their links with policing, partly because they've been called out um, in a number of high-profile cases where they did a poor job of that. Um, internationally, they're trying to work a lot harder um, at providing information to the police, but again, that can only happen after the fact um, and, and the harm has already been done. Of course, you know, victims of crime um, who want to take that to the police deserve justice, but there are many people who, um, you know, as we know, want other avenues. They want um, counselling, mm. they want peer support, they want um, a really clear sense of what kinds of um, safety measures will be in place for the future and simply linking um, the apps to the police doesn't do that for them. All right, and we are running out of time, but, I mean, it's an issue of time actually for these people because every day that you know action isn't taken you know more people are at risk of being harmed how long how long can we expect this to take to see some kind of Look, results I, I, um, the way you're framing this it makes it sound like dating away from apps is 100 percent safe and no one has to worry about dating if an app isn't involved i have to say unfortunately we live in a culture where sexual violence is very very high prevalence a lot of sexual violence goes unreported on and off apps, yes, we need a really big look at ourselves around consent, around the ways that we negotiate sexual interactions, around dating violence, around intimate partner violence. Um, but dating violence won't be solved in the next six months. But I really think that um, 
this is a good step forward for app-related dating violence, but I think it's part of a bigger conversation we need to have around sexual violence in our culture and the poor job yeah. we've done responding to it. All right, Professor Kath Aubrey, thank you so much for coming on. No worries. That was Professor Kath Aubrey from Swinburne University of Technology and got a few texts coming in. Matt from Sydney says... Saying people are perpetrators and not the problem is like saying guns don't kill people, people kill people, but we still have laws governing guns. There needs to be laws governing these dating apps. Hack. Thousands of people have lost their lives, thousands of people have lost their homes, and thousands of families are stranded or, or lost. On Triple J. Yeah, you might have seen some really shocking pictures and videos coming out of Libya recently. Last week, there was a massive flooding disaster and there's still a huge recovery effort underway. More than 11,000 people have died and many thousands more are still missing or injured or have lost their homes. And to make it worse, Libya isn't actually that far from Morocco, where a deadly earthquake recently hit, meaning that aid workers are stretched trying to deal with both disasters at once. Kira Proust has more. A week ago, Storm Daniel travelled across the Mediterranean Sea and hit Libya in the northern part of Africa. The country's eastern province was the hardest hit. It's been declared a disaster zone and more than 11,000 people have already died there. We lost 30 people so far, 30 members of the same family. The city of Derna is suffering the most. More than 90,000 people live in the region. Water from the storm forced two dams above the city to burst and that water caused heaps of buildings to collapse, many with families inside. 23-year-old Libyan medical student Amna Khalid says hers was lucky to have escaped alive. The second that we all escaped from our building, we saw it collapsing. At that moment, I did not care about anything except my siblings. I wish I had, like eight arms so I can just hug them all because two arms versus two litter, I, can, I couldn't hold them all. The city has been left without water, electricity and petrol as aid groups rush things like bottled water to those most in need. Eastern Libya's Health Minister Otman Abdujilil says there's also a real concern that waterborne diseases could start spreading. What we urge people is to stay away from areas with stagnating water and, of course, dead bodies. Also, we advise them not to drink at all from groundwater because it might be contaminated, maybe with sewage. Some meteorologists have been calling Storm Daniel a Medicane, meaning a Mediterranean hurricane. Before hitting Libya, it swept across southern Europe, killing at least 14 people there. Rescue workers are now using things like thermal cameras to try and search for more victims in Libya. UN aid chief Martin Griffiths says countries around the world are also trying to help where they can, providing emergency medical teams, rescue equipment and a bunch of funding. This is a tragedy in which climate and capacity has collided to cause this terrible, terrible tragedy. The recovery effort has been made so much harder because Libya has been racked by conflict for years and it doesn't even have a central government right now. The city of Derna used to be held by a group of Islamic extremists and they left the place with poor services and crumbling infrastructure. Some politicians have called for an investigation into the floods and locals reckon negligence and mismanagement are to blame. We had warned the authorities since last week, no, for years, that the dam had cracks and needs to be maintained. We said it and nobody listened to us. And now the whole of Derna is flooded. 
Because the death toll is so high, many people are being buried in mass graves. But aid groups like the International Committee of the Red Cross are calling for that to stop. Bodies need to be documented and buried in labelled body bags. Graves need to be mapped so that there is record of who is buried there. No Australians are known to be affected by the disaster. The federal government will provide $1 million for needed humanitarian assistance in the affected communities. Hack on Triple J. Thank you to Kira Prowse for that story, a really important one. All right, it's time to move on. Hack. It's beautiful to be out here, but definitely a bit concerning that it's this warm in early spring. On Triple J. How much thought have you put into preparing for a weather disaster? Not a lot, I reckon. Because it turns out that only around 10% of us have done any kind of preparation for a bushfire or a flood or even a heatwave. That's right, heatwaves can be pretty dangerous, but in Australia, we don't really worry about them. But already, already, rather, parts of the country are seeing unusually hot temperatures and it's expected to stay that way for a while. So how do we actually prepare? Should we go for a swim or stay inside when it arrives? Let me know what you do. Text in on 0439757555. Well, Associate Professor Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick is from the University of New South Wales. She's a climate and heatwave scientist, so this is her specialty. Sarah, thanks for coming on Hack. Is it unusual for parts of the country experiencing hot conditions so early in spring? Yeah, so at the moment it really is quite unseasonably hot. We are heading into summer, so we do expect the the warm weather to start building up. But it pretty much seems like we've gone from a fairly mild winter straight into summer in some parts of Australia. So it's certainly unusual to have it this warm this early in spring, which I think will be a, a shock to a lot of us because we've just come out of three really wet and relatively cooler um, summers due to La Nina. So this, this summer and this spring is certainly shaping up to be something quite different. And what's causing that change? Is it just cycles when it moves from La Nina to El Nino or is there something else? Look, it's, it's a com- complex p- picture. So at the moment, we've got the Indian Ocean Dipole ramping up and it's going into a phase which means hot and dry conditions during spring and towards the beginning of summer. Then we also have the El Nino ramping up in the Pacific, which generally means hot and dry conditions over the eastern two-thirds of Australia uh, during summer. So th- those are having a double whammy effect. But on top of that, there's an underlying signal of climate change as well. Uh, Australia's warmed by almost 1.5 degrees Celsius in the last 120 years, and that's certainly having a notable effect on top of background climate variability. And so does that mean that when it's hot, it's more intense or heat waves last longer and are more intense? How does that come to show itself? Uh, D, all of the above. Uh, so there's a very strong correlation between um, you know, El Nino and uh, hotter, longer and more intense heat waves. And the same also goes for climate change. Uh, so when you, when you put those two together, they do have a compounding effect. They both mean hot and dry conditions or, or hotter and more intense heat waves. Um, and together, yeah, they just really amplify what's going, going to happen. Okay, so more heat waves, more hot conditions. Yep. What are the dangers and risks that come with that? Yeah, so you've got to be really careful in really extreme heat. So what we need to do is, you know, just be sensible effectively. Don't go outside if it's super hot. Don't do any sort of physical activity uh, when it's above 30, 35 degrees. Drink plenty of water and stay in the shade. And if if you don't have access to cooling facilities, make sure that you can go to somewhere where you can stay cool, particularly during the hottest parts of the day. It's interesting that you say don't go outside because usually I find that when it's hot, 
you start getting text messages or calls from friends being like, hey, let's go to the beach or let's go outside and take advantage of the hot weather. But you're saying it's actually the opposite. You should try and stay out of it. Oh, 100%. It's, you know, if I see people running when it's 35 to 40 degrees Celsius, I think, you know, you're up for a death sentence. That is not good on you physically. Not only can you get really severely sunburned, but it also means that you're putting, you know, as, as you're doing exercise or as you're putting yourself in that those extreme conditions, you're trying to shed your own heat load. And in hot conditions, it's just not possible for your body to do that effectively. So, yeah, the beach can be attractive, particularly if you can go and cool yourself off in the ocean. But you do need to be careful. You need to pick, well, what time of the day are you going to go to the beach? Is it going to be cooler there than it will be where you currently live? Do you have adequate sun protection and shade if you're going to be there for an extended period of time? So you've really got to be sensible with your behaviour. It's We're kind of shifting out of this, you know, it's summer, it's hot, we know what to do here in Australia because we love it so much. Though That sort of cultural identification really needs to shift um, over the coming years because ultimately climate change is going to make these events worse. This is Hack on Triple J. You're hearing from Associate Professor Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick. She's an expert in the climate and heat waves from UNSW. Sarah, I just on this, new research has shown that only 10% of Australians have a plan in place in the event of a natural disaster like a bushfire or flooding or a heat wave. I mean, what are the broader impacts of heat waves when it comes to natural disasters? Is there something there as well? So when, when other types of extreme events happen, they are commonly uh, coupled with uh, heat waves. So droughts, for example, and also bushfires tend to occur during or after really hot and dry conditions as well. Is it a bit concerning then that only 10% of Australians have prepared for any kind of natural disaster? Yeah, yeah, look, I actually find that quite shocking, especially given Black Summer and how abhorrent and, you know, horrible that that whole situation was. I've, you know, I've seen it pushed really hard that, you know, we should all have, for example, a bushfire preparedness plan. If only 10% of us are doing that, uh, that's not good enough because, unfortunately, these sorts of extreme events will amplify with climate change. We have so many people in Australia living in zones where we are susceptible to certain types of extreme events and natural disasters. We also need to, I think, I think we all should, you know, be starting to think about our own heatwave plans as well. So we, we need to do a better job in being prepared for them because I, I don't think we're actually doing what's required at the moment. So how should people prepare if there's one coming? Yeah, absolutely. If you know that one's coming, you know, you've got, you've got time. Usually uh, they're forecasted out by the Bureau of Meteorology um, a fair few days in advance. So make sure you take precautionary measures. So, for example, make sure you've got lots of water at home. Make sure on even at the beginning of a heat wave, keep your house dark. Keep it as dark as possible and stop light coming in because that ultimately stops the house heating up. And the earlier you do that in the event, the more you can keep the, the cool area in your house. Uh, if you do have air conditioning, try not to turn it on until it reaches you know, a plus 30 degrees, maybe even a bit hotter and try and use fans instead because that preserves electricity for other people to use as well as um, fans actually being quite effective when it's up to about 35 to 38 degrees Celsius. Okay, and just one last thing I wanted to ask about is the Bureau of Meteorology still hasn't officially called an El Nino yet in Australia, even though some other agencies and experts around the world have. Why do you think that could be and do you think it might uh, create a false sense of security until that's done? 
Yeah, they are actually two really important questions. So the reason why they haven't um, declared it yet is because the atmosphere hasn't yet responded. So any phase, either phase of ENSO, whether it's El Nino or La Nina, is effectively coupled. And what we mean by that is the interaction between the ocean and the atmosphere. And at least currently in this El Nino or this developing El Nino, the atmosphere hasn't yet properly, properly coupled with the ocean. It's starting to do that now, but it needs to be sustained for a certain period of time. That's, that is started to happen and I do think that we'd have um, an announcement by the Bureau imminent, whether it's in two weeks' time or four weeks' time or six weeks' time, but they really are just waiting to see that coupling be sustained. Um, but I do also think, say if one isn't declared, I do think it does kind of lead people into a false sense of security that, oh, you know, no, El Nino hasn't been declared, so therefore it won't be a hot summer. It's not, you know, it's not that sort of absolute yes or no type situation with weather and, and climate phenomena. Yes, El Nino's do enhance hot conditions, but already the Bureau has forecast hot and dry conditions, even without El Nino being declared. So yes, it can certainly make things worse, but things simply don't get better by one just not being declared. All right, Sarah Perkins, Kirkpatrick, thank you so much for coming on Hack. No worries. Thanks for having me. That was Associate Professor Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick, an expert in heat waves and the climate from UNSW. That's all we have time for on the Hack Podcast. I'm out of here. Dave Marchese will be back tomorrow. Catch you later. Hack on Triple Jack.